Good morning. My name is Gary Payne, and I'm the uh, lay leader for this morning's service. I want to welcome everyone to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. And before we do anything else, please join me in the lighting of our chalice. In the light of truth, in the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome persons of all religions, ethnic and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. We extend a special welcome today to our visitors. We're glad you're here. Affirming our mission statement, the words up here are in your bulletin. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Now is the time in our service when we bring into this sacred space our joys and our sorrows. In this time, while there is beautiful music, we will um, come forward and light candles if there is a significant joy or sorrow or memory in your life that you would like to mark in that way. If you are staying in your seat, please participate by wrapping those who are lighting candles in holy light and in sacred dark. Um, I'm going to talk about a group in Concord, a group of friends who all lived together, who affected the whole thought and culture of the United States. They lived together in Concord, Massachusetts in the early 1800s, right about the time that Beethoven was writing his, um, well, Emerson was, the Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of the ones who was central to this group. He was born right about the time that Beethoven was writing the Eroica Symphony, um, at the time of Napoleon. He was born to a Unitarian minister and his wife, and he was raised without much money. He had an aunt, uh, Mary Moody. She was said to have been a curmudgeon. Now, Mary Moody was a curmudgeon, and she, but apparently everybody just smiled at her because she had all the money in the family, and she... She paid for Waldo's education. He hated the name Ralph. He wanted to be called Waldo. So you can be like in the know at your next cocktail party. So you know his name was Waldo Emerson, really not Ralph. He, he didn't like that name. So Aunt Mary Moody paid for Waldo's education um, in, uh, all the way through grade school and then on to Harvard, where he was uh, an indifferent student. He was the poet of his graduating class, the class poet, but um, he accepted that position after it had already been offered to six other people. <laughs> um, Waldo became a Unitarian minister after graduation, 
and fell in love with a very delicate young woman named Ellen Tucker. She was about 16 when they fell in love. They waited until she was 18 before they got married. She was from a very wealthy family, and she had a ton of money coming to her on her 21st birthday. Um, Unfortunately, she died before that birthday, leaving Emerson heartbroken and crazed with grief. He did not love her for her money. He adored Ellen Tucker. He was so grief-crazed that this was really one of the first shaping events of his whole life. He visited her grave often, and he even, I'm checking for children, he even um, once dug her up just to look at her again. He was, yes, I say crazed, not lightly. His belief in God began to fall apart or evolve. You all have had that experience. Things fall apart. Are they falling apart or are they evolving? We don't know sometimes until years later. But his beliefs began to evolve because of this. And the members of his congregation were not so supportive of this evolution of his beliefs. Emerson finally got so frustrated with church people because they wanted communion. That's all they cared about, he thought. They want a communion on Sunday morning in the Unitarian Church long ago. It was a very Christian denomination before Emerson. Um, they want a communion on Sunday morning, and they didn't care about the week in between. That's what he felt. And so he left the Unitarian ministry. Stayed Unitarian, I think, but quit the church. He said people should pay attention to living their principles during the week instead of... Uh, just focusing on communion. And he began writing, and he began lecturing and traveling, and he made his living through his speaking, and he drew enthusiastic crowds wherever he went. He was asked, because he was a rising star of a speaker, he was asked to give the lecture to the graduating class at Harvard, the graduating class of ministers. And in that speech, he came down so hard on local ministers in local churches He said they were so dull, and they were so rule-bound, and they were so frozen, and they were so intellectual. Um, He presented an alternative of um, getting nourishment for your soul, finding the divine in, in nature. He preached about the oneness of all things. He preached about your inner wisdom and finding the wisdom within yourself. He preached about not quoting other people. I love to quote Emerson. Uh, My favorite quote is, I hate quotations. But um, he wanted people to admire wisdom, but not take wisdom that was from long ago because perhaps that was wisdom that was good for that time and not good for this time. And so that you should listen to the living wisdom and respect the knowledge that comes fresh to you from your experience rather than quoting people who had a different experience from you. Now, did the Harvard administration like that speech? No. They asked him never to come back. And he didn't until he was a very old man. And they finally invited him back to participate in a memorial service for those killed in the Civil War. So, then came an obscure little lawsuit that changed everything. 
The lawsuit came when Waldo sued Ellen Tucker's family for her inheritance. The brother-in-law did not think he should get the money, but the court did. And so Waldo got Ellen Tucker's inheritance that was supposed to come to her when she was 21. And that money, my friends, made all the difference, all the difference for the whole United States and our philosophy and thought. Because it gave Waldo the same income, the interest on it gave him the same income that he had as a minister. So he could write and he could relax. It made all the difference for Emerson and it made all the difference for Thoreau and it made all the difference for the Alcott family and Nathaniel Hawthorne and for many enslaved men and women who were escaping from the South. And I'll go into that further in a little bit. One of the places he spoke was on Cape Cod, where at a post-lecture reception, he met a lovely young woman named Lydia, and they had a conversation at the reception. Then several months later, he wrote her a letter. Now, they say people tell you everything that you need to know about them in the first 15 minutes. He wrote her a letter apologizing for not having time to ask her this in person, but would she marry him? <laughs> she wrote a letter back and said yes. He wrote a letter back to her and said, would she mind changing her name from Lydia to Lydian? She said okay. And they bought a big house on the road in Concord and started a family. Now, Emerson made a practice of inviting people that he was interested in to come to Concord. Bronson Alcott had a school in Boston called the Temple School, and the school had just gone broke because Bronson Alcott, I'm sorry, he was a genius, but he was a flake, business-wise. And so the school had gone broke. Well, it wasn't just that he wasn't a good businessman. It was also that he had this theory of education that children should discover things for themselves. <laughs> And that they should not just sit there like little robots and recite what the schoolmaster had given them to recite. And that they should move around during the day. And that they should learn the truth about procreation. Um, what a scandal. So the Alcotts were at loose ends, and Emerson wrote and invited this educational pioneer and his family um, to come to Concord, and they uh, moved in down the road to a house that Emerson had found for them to rent, and um, he paid their rent, and they stayed, and he kept paying their rent. A neighbor paid their taxes, because Bronson just didn't have time to work a what they call in the South a public job. He didn't have time to work a public job because he was educating his daughters, homeschooling them, and he was helping to start a utopian vegetarian community um, that lasted a, a little while just because most of these intellectuals moved out there because they loved the idea of living off the land, but they had to actually, you know, take care of the cattle and um, shovel things, and um, it didn't work out. His daughter, Louisa May Alcott, was a wild pony of a girl. He, she liked to gallop around, and um, he despaired of her. Uh, she said she'd been a, a horse in a former life. Uh, he liked his blonder daughters because he felt that there was a correlation between being spiritual and being blonde. 
Another friend in Concord was David Henry Thoreau, who changed his name to Henry David Thoreau. He was another Harvard graduate. I, I love that, that, they, that so many of the transcendentalists changed their names because it's such a, a perfect way of marking a new life, a, a chosen life. Anyway, um, David Henry Thoreau didn't change his name very much, just to Henry David Thoreau. And he was another Harvard graduate. His family had a pencil factory in Concord, and he was always in the woods. He knew more about nature than anyone else around. He loved the animals. He knew where the foxes were uh, holing up in their dens. He could watch for hours while the squirrels hid their nuts. He knew the name of every plant and every bird. And he would take the kids on um, nature walks. He became the teacher for Emerson and Lydian's two sons who adored him. He, in turn, adored Lydian's sister, Lucy, while he was in his 20s, Lucy was in her 40s. Is this too gossipy for you? Uh, it's kind of like the, the People magazine of Unitarianism. Um, but he adored Lucy, Lydian's sister, who was staying with the family. And he thought she was elegant and sophisticated. But mostly, though, as the years went on, he loved Lydian, Mrs. Emerson. When Emerson went on speaking tours, Thoreau moved into the house to take care of the kids and to take care of the house and to take care of Lydian. Um, he planted the garden. He fixed the porch. He made Lydian a secret compartment under one of the dining room chairs to store her good gloves. We don't know if Lydian loved Thoreau or not. We don't know what the nature of their love was, but he was... Um, another member of the family that the children adored and uh, who was very important to the family. And then when it came time for him to write the book about a canoe trip that he'd taken with his brother John, uh, they gave him a woodlot over on Walden Pond where he built a tiny little cabin with, uh, with wood that Emerson paid for and um, stayed there and wrote the book about the canoe trip. John had... Um, died of lockjaw in the same year that Emerson's young son, Waldo, had died of scarlet fever. And so they were bonded in sorrow together, and it, it made the group very close. Another frequent house guest at the Emersons was the brilliant, beautiful, and talented Margaret Fuller. Margaret Fuller was uh, an intellectual. Her father had educated her beyond the limits of most young women of the time, and she could converse on any subject in Latin or Greek or English. She was also, this didn't hurt, gorgeous. Um, she had lo large, luminous eyes and lots of hair and a very voluptuous figure. And um, Lydian took to her bed when... Margaret Fuller came to the house. The way Emerson looked at Margaret Fuller, the letters they wrote back and forth across the hall, her bedroom to his study, they wrote letters. It was all too much for Lydian to endure, and they took long walks in the woods. Margaret was the first woman to be allowed into the hallowed halls of Harvard Library. She hosted conversations. Women weren't allowed to lecture at that time, 
they were allowed to have conversations. So Margaret hosted conversations at a bookstore in Boston owned by Elizabeth Peabody of the famous Peabody sisters, and that's how Margaret made her living. And women would come from far and wide to take part in these conversations on the role of women, sexuality, and all manner of topics challenging the local mores and culture. Another friend who came to the Concord to... Um, to join in this group was Nathaniel Hawthorne. He had courted Elizabeth Peabody, but married her sicklier sister, um, Sophie. I, I just don't have time to tell you that whole story. But um, <laughs> he also fell in love with Margaret Fuller. Suffice it to say, when Emerson came upon them walking in the woods, suddenly the house that the Hawthorns were renting became unavailable anymore, and they had to move. Thoreau finally came out of the woods and published his book on the canoe trip. It did not sell. So he began putting his journals from Walden Pond together, hoping he could make something out of that. And um, he kept polishing them and polishing them. No publisher would touch him since the, the disaster of his first book. And so finally Emerson paid to have those journals published on Walden Pond. Emerson also paid for the runaway men and women, the enslaved men and women who were trying to make it to Canada. The homes in Concord that Emerson paid for were stops on the Underground Railroad. So all throughout this story is the refrain, <coughs> Emerson paid, Emerson paid, Emerson paid, Emerson paid. If Thoreau had had to get a job, where would American thought be? The Alcotts had the luxury of exploring educational theory. Many of those theories are practiced today um, because Emerson was paying. And one of the reasons that I'm telling you this story today as our stewardship drive is starting is that Unitarian thought was so shaped by those people they read Buddhism and Hinduism because those manuscripts were just then being translated and read by intellectuals. They put it together with their liberal Christian Unitarianism, and they came out with the Transcendentalism, which says everything is one, everything is connected in one soul, you pay attention to your inner wisdom and live by the light of your own experiences rather than bowing the knee to what someone else wants you to think. Where would we be without Emerson? That's my religion. I don't know if it's yours or not. It's because Emerson had the money. So what I want to ask you this morning is... You know, we have people in this congregation who barely make it from day to day, people on disability. We have people in this congregation who are comfortable, although uh, as long as they don't do anything fancy or take a vacation. And we have people here who have a, a very comfortable life and who have enough money to live on comfortably and to give. And so what I want to say is... <clears throat> In Unitarianism from the beginning, it has not been fair. 
If Emerson had said, I'm not giving any more until you get a job, Thoreau, we would simply not be the country that we are. And so what I want to ask is, in your heart and in your conscience, we want you during this stewardship drive to give generously according to your means. And that is between you and your conscience. And Chris will talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. So, I, I have five minutes to tell you what happened to Margaret Fuller. Actually, I don't, but I'm going to take them. In the second service, we have to end on time, but in the first service, we can fudge it just a little bit. Um, Margaret Fuller became a journalist. Horace Greeley offered her a job as an editor of the New York Tribune, and she traveled overseas and fell in love. She was the first female foreign correspondent during the revolution in Rome. And she fell in love with a man who may have been a count. And the count had been disinherited because of his revolutionary activities. Um, they may have gotten married, or they may not have. Margaret Fuller was that way. She didn't really believe in marriage, but they had a baby. Um, she wanted to come back to Concord, and Lydia and Emerson just couldn't imagine. Uh, Margaret Fuller was hard enough to fit into American society, even single and not a mother, but <clears throat> maybe single and a mother, there was just absolutely no way. But um, come back, she did. At least she started to. She and the Count and the baby named Nino got on a boat. Her friend, the poet Robert Browning, said, I have a terrible feeling about this, Margaret. Don't do it. She herself had a terrible feeling about it, but got on the boat anyway. The boat was also carrying a lot of marble from Italy to the United States, most particularly an enormous marble bust of Unitarian John C. Calhoun. Not one of the Unitarians we're the proudest of, because he fought hard against abolition. Um, he was from South Carolina. They, they had that bust um, in South Carolina for a long time. Um, but this bust was in the hold of the ship, so the ship was wallowing a little bit because of all this marble in the hold. The captain died of smallpox before they were even out of the Mediterranean Sea. The new junior captain who took on the uh, job didn't really know what he was doing, got them across the Atlantic, but overshot the New York Harbor, and they ran aground 3 a.m. in heavy weather on Fire Island. Ran aground, right? Within seeing distance of Fire Island, they had a, a spit of land that they wrecked on, and the ship began to break up. One guy said, I can see the shore from here. I'm just going to swim, and he jumped off, and they all watched him drown. People from Cape Cod, from Fire Island, started coming and, and looking, watching um, the ship, helpless to do anything. The Count and Margaret had made a, a burly a friend of a burly uh, guy, a sailor on the ship, and he said, I think I can make it, give me the baby. And so they strapped their baby to this guy, and he jumped in and they watched them both drown. And so the people who were watching described Margaret Fuller in the the wind and the rain, her nightgowns whipping around her body, white glowing, her hair was whipping around her body. She didn't try to get in the water. She just went down with the ship. She and the Count both drowned at the end. 
but they say that bust of John C. Calhoun. I blame that bust, really, for the ship breaking up. You run aground and you've got a lot of marble in the hull, it's going to be pounding against the wood and breaking it up. I think John killed Margaret. That's what I think. Anyway. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.